Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and go to the end of the chapter. Verse 36. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, inspired without error and for our good. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband and to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear any fod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then... Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off the strength of your house 
and your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon you, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God now in prayer and ask Him to bless us as we listen to His word. Father, surely it is a true statement that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's much from this passage that should sober us and get our attention. There's much from this passage that demands, Father, our response. And God, there's much in this passage to encourage us and to prepare us to live faithfully, Father, in light of Your purpose and plan in this world. Would You give us ears to hear all of those things this morning, God? Soften our hearts. Open our minds. Give us eyes to see the truth that You have revealed. Father, I pray that You would keep me from error. I pray that You would help the words that I say to be faithful to the text and clear. We pray, God, that the Spirit would work among us now and grant us discernment and grace that we would believe what it is You have spoken. And we pray all of this, Father, for the glory of Christ's name and for the good of His church. Amen. Well, it's not a pretty picture here in 1 Samuel 2, is it? The nation of Israel has experienced so much of God's gracious mercy, but you wouldn't know it from what is going on at Shiloh. The Lord's tabernacle looks more like a brothel than a place of worship. The Lord's altar is treated like the meat aisle at the supermarket. And the Lord's priests, the men set apart to serve God, are getting fat at the expense of God's people. I mean, it's almost like the Canaanites have never left here in chapter 2. Where is the concern for God's glory? Where is the zeal for God's law? If Shiloh is the center of Israel's spiritual life, then it seems the nation is barren and spiritually lifeless. And yet, in the midst of the squalor at Shiloh, what else do we find? We find Hannah's little boy, Samuel. He lives there in the middle of the mess and he is growing. It's not much at this point, but Samuel's quiet presence is a signal that Israel is not completely lost. In fact, that's what we should learn from God's Word this morning, brothers and sisters. God's plan for His people is more like a seed than it is a lightning bolt. It doesn't flash and fade. It sprouts and grows slowly at first, but steadily over time. 
So things are certainly messy at Shiloh. But the Lord is also there, and He is working, though it is in a quiet way. If you look with me at the text, you can see a pattern that reveals the Lord's persistent purpose. Notice how the passage contrasts Eli's wicked sons and Samuel. The action alternates back and forth between the two. You can see it there in the passage. Verse 11, we have Samuel ministering to the Lord. Then in verses 12 to 17, we meet Eli's sons. Then in 18 to 21, it shifts back to Samuel. 22 to 25, back to Hophni and Phinehas. 26, again there's Samuel until finally the chapter concludes in 27 to 36 with Eli and his sons. So you see the pattern? It's back and forth. It's alternating. Eli's sons are wicked, but God will not be deterred. Right there in the midst of the wickedness, God is working. And He's working through the life of a single growing boy. So, in light of that pattern, here's how we're going to proceed. We're going to look at each of the three players in the passage. Eli's family, Samuel's family, and then the Lord's messenger. And then from each of those, we're going to consider the truth that their lives reveal and then how it applies to us as God's people today. So three players giving us three truths. That's how we're going to proceed. We begin with Eli and his family. Here we see the pervasive spread of sin's corruption. That's the first truth. The pervasive spread of sin's corruption. Verse 12 leaves no doubt regarding the character of Eli's sons. Look again at how just abrupt and pointed verse 12 is. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Scoundrels. Wicked. Swindlers. That's the kind of men who are running things at Shiloh. Though they have been entrusted with God's ministry, they do not actually know God. And that's the root of everything wrong at Shiloh. Their hearts are far from God. They have no regard for the Lord or for His ways. They're just going through the motions. Remember, friends, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and the hands act. So when Eli's sons sin against God, they're revealing their true character. They do not know the Lord. Now, as an aside, what this should teach us is that you can be closely acquainted with the things of God and not know Him. You can have grown up in church your whole life and not know God. Don't assume that close proximity to the things of God equals an actual relationship with Him. It doesn't. Only faith in Christ brings someone to know God. So right from the start, we should be sobered from Eli's son. But as sobering as verse 12 is, you'll notice there's more. There's much more actually. The passage goes on to describe in detail the sin of Eli's sons. And I want to just hang out here for a minute so that we see how pervasive and widespread the effect of sin was in their lives and in the lives of God's people. We can follow it step by step, so to speak. First of all, Eli's sons discard God's Word. Look at verses 13 and 14. The law of Moses stipulated how the priests were to get a share of each sacrifice. This was God's means of providing for His ministers. 
But Hophni and Phinehas discard the provision of God's Word. They send a servant to take more than what God had provided. So try to picture it, friends. You have these humble Israelites, the people of God. They're bringing their offerings to the Lord. And every time, without fail, here comes the man with the fork. And amazingly, he seems to pull up the choicest cuts of meat every time you offer your sacrifice. And it happens every time you come. It's selfish, it's greedy, and it all stems from their discarding God's Word. But Hophni and Phinehas are not finished. They also defy God's position. Look at verses 15 and 16 where they take it a step further. Again, the law stipulated that the fat from each sacrifice was to be burned first as an offering to God. I don't know why the Lord specified that the fat was His, but that's what He said. I get the fat and I get it first. But Eli's sons defy God's position. They demand their cut of meat before God got His. What's more, if the worshiper tried to follow the Scriptures, Hophni and Phinehas wouldn't let him. They would take the meat by force. Do you see how the wickedness is spreading now? Not only do they disobey God's Word, but they're causing other people to disobey God's Word too. But shockingly, their corruption goes deeper still. They also defame God's glory. Look down to verse 22. Eli's sons are committing sexual immorality at the tabernacle. Now remember, the tabernacle at this point was the dwelling place of God on earth. God's glory resided here in the tent of meeting. So when Hophni and Phinehas engaged in this behavior at the tabernacle, they were defaming the very glory of God. Look, sexual immorality would have been bad wherever they did it, but they're doing it in the tabernacle, in between the sacrifices. This is what the Old Testament calls sinning with a high hand. It is flagrant, it is purposeful, defaming of the character of God. And it's happening out in the open so that all of Israel knows what's going on. Friends, do you see how pervasive their sin became? Do you see how widespread the corruption was? This is one of the takeaways for us this morning. Sin is never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied. Its appetite is insatiable. Sin does not stop with one area of your soul. It reaches out its cancerous tentacles until every area of your life is infected. Think about it. Hopney and Phineas didn't wake up one day and just decide out of the blue, you know what, I'm going to disregard God's Word, take advantage of God's people, and defame God's character. They didn't just decide that one morning. It started small. And then it spread over time. And why? Because sin is never satisfied. It always wants more. Every individual sin is like a beachhead of an invading army that will not stop until you're dead or it's dead. So let this be an exhortation to us, brothers and sisters. We must deal with sin head on at the first sign of its presence. There are no little sins. Sin cannot be managed or quarantined. It will spread. And therefore, we must be quick to strike back against sin. So ask yourself this morning, 
Think, just think about your life and ask yourself, am I trying to quarantine sin as though it could be managed? Or am I seeking to kill sin since it always spreads? Which one characterizes your life? A management mindset or a lethal mindset? And don't stop there. Then go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to give you a renewed willingness to fight. Even more, ask your brothers and sisters to help you in the battle. I know that sounds scary because it means other people will see your dirt. But friends, this is how God intends the church to work. We live honestly with one another. In fact, if we don't live honestly, then the church doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Live honestly with one another, not putting on the best front, but openly confessing our need so that we might find help from the body. So ask people for help. The church is a hospital for sinners. Ask for help. Oh, how I pray we receive this exhortation from the life of Eli's sons. It is such a gripping picture. Sin is never satisfied. It will spread. So we should never rest in our fight to kill it. I wish I could say that was the end of sin's corruption in Eli's family. But it's not. Tragically, the effects show up in Eli's life as well. They probably began here. Notice verses 23 to 25, where Eli disregards his God-given responsibility. The old priest attempts to talk to with his sons. You should give him credit that he at least tries to talk to them. He acknowledges their sin is flagrant and well-known. He even acknowledges that their sin is dangerous since it is directly against God. Who is left to intercede for them if they're rebelling against the Lord Himself? There's no one left to intercede for them. Eli acknowledges all of those things. But notice that's all Eli does. That's all he does. He doesn't remove them from the priesthood, which is what the law required... And what's more, he didn't do anything earlier, which is what he should have done as their father. Now, I don't know why Eli failed in this way. Maybe he was so caught up in his priestly duties that he forgot to tend to his own house. Maybe he was too afraid of damaging the relationship with his sons. Maybe he mistakenly thought they would grow out of it. You know, boys will be boys kind of thing. There are any number of explanations as to why Eli didn't act. But the point is, he didn't. He disregarded his God-given responsibility. And the consequences were devastating. Notice the end of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Friends, that is a sobering statement of God's sovereign justice. Remember Hannah's words from verse 6, just a few verses earlier. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. We cannot skirt this truth and remain faithful to the Bible. God is sovereign over all things, every single human heart. And in His sovereignty, He allowed Hopney's and Phineas's hearts to become so hardened in sin that they were entrenched in their refusal to repent. That's what it means that the Lord willed to put them to death. He gave them over to sin. 
Understand, we have to read verse 25 in light of what we've already seen from Eli's sons. How had they lived up to this point? They rejected God's word, they blasphemed God's character, and they were settled in their opposition to the Lord. And therefore, God in His justice gives them over to their sin. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. That spiral of sin that ends in God's judgment. There is a kind of sinning that goes on for so long and is so flagrant that God gives a person over to it so that their heart is confirmed in their rebellion against God. That's what we're talking about here. It's a devastating end to sin's corruption of Eli's family. And notice how it all began. How did it all begin? With apathy. With apathy. That's the exhortation here for us. Sin thrives on apathy. Sin thrives on apathy. We see it so clearly at this point. Eli's apathy created the environment for his son's sin to spread. Now, don't misunderstand me. Eli's sons were absolutely responsible for their own actions. Their father didn't make them do those wicked things. But Eli's apathy did help create the environment where it could happen. So we could put it this way. Eli put up with sin and his sons then pursued it. How about us? Do we see the same kind of apathy in our response to sin? Do we assume that things can be addressed later? Friend, there may not be a later. Do we shy away from that difficult conversation because we're afraid it might be hard or uncomfortable? Have we bought into the mistaken idea that love never confronts or challenges someone? Brothers and sisters, apathy is easy in the short term, and there might seem to be some immediate benefits, but in the end, the effects are devastating. So whether it is our own children or our fellow church members, let's take seriously the responsibility to love people enough to have the hard conversation. And let me say a specific word to those among us who are fathers. Like Eli, I'm involved in the Lord's business. And like Eli, I have two sons. So this scene is particularly gripping to me, as, I sure it is, as I'm sure it is for many of you. So, fathers, your home is ground zero for your ministry. Before you seek to serve the Lord elsewhere, make sure you are serving Him in your home. It's that essential. And in this essential ministry, apathy is one of your greatest foes. Oh, how many times I've heard that little voice whispering in my ears, you can address it later. You can take care of it later. No, my brothers, let's be about the Lord's work today. Let's have the courage to be faithful today. Let's teach our children the Scriptures. Let's discipline them in love so that they might see the consequences of sin now instead of on the last day. 
Let's train them to know self-control and obedience and responsibility. Let's pray for them to go, for, let's pray that God would give them new spiritual life. And above all, let's model for them the truth that in God's presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. All oh, for our children to grow up in homes where fathers lead in loving God and delighting in His word. Men, let's do this. If you don't know how to do it, then grab another brother and say, help me. Let's do it together. I pray that this would be true in our church. Sin thrives on apathy. It's never satisfied. But by God's grace, let's carry the banner of courage to lead. Beginning especially in our homes. Amen? Amen. So... Brothers and sisters, I hope we see how pervasive sin's corruption was in the life of Eli's family, stretching from the father down to his sons and on beyond that. It's not a pretty picture, but it's one that we should take very seriously. Thankfully, however, Eli's house is not the only family mentioned in our passage. We also see a number of references to Samuel and even one mention of his parents. And it's from Samuel's family that we draw our second truth. The humble growth of God's plan. The humble growth of God's plan. As we said at the outset, the passage alternates between Eli's sons and Samuel. The references to Samuel are shorter but that doesn't mean they're insignificant. In fact, it's just the opposite. Those brief glimpses of Samuel's life are intended to encourage us that the wickedness will not win. Yes, things at the tabernacle are, disarray, are in disarray, but there is something, or we should say someone, growing at Shiloh who gives us hope. So notice with me a few features from Samuel's life that hint at the work of God. First of all, we see Samuel's service. Look at verse 18. And notice the description of the boy. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Now, in the Old Testament, a linen ephod is nearly always associated with priestly service. It's what priests wear. And that's the connection we should make at this point. Hopney and Phineas are miserable priests, unfaithful in every way. But that's not true of everyone at Shiloh, even if it's only one. There is one person, the boy Samuel, who is serving faithfully before the Lord. So it's only a sprout at this point, but God's plan is growing. And soon it will bear great fruit. We also see Samuel's siblings. Notice what happens in verses 19 to 21. Elkanah and Hannah continue to visit Shiloh each year. Hannah brings a new robe for her son, and the family perseveres in worshiping the Lord together. I mean, even old Eli seems to recognize their faithfulness as he pronounces a blessing on the family. And then note what God does He gives dear Hannah more children. Now, it's not the main point of the passage. But let's, let's linger for just a moment on the generosity of God. 
This is such a compelling picture of what our God is like. Within the heart of God, there is a well of goodness so deep and so refreshing that He cannot keep it in. It pours out of Him into the lives of His people because that's the way His glory is seen. Through the overflow of who He is. And understand, friends, God doesn't have to dig deep to find this sort of kindness for His children. He exudes kindness as naturally as the sun emits light. It just comes out of Him. It's who He is. He's good. He's generous. He is kind. And that is part of the connection we're intended to make at this point. I know that it's stark to go from it's the will of the Lord to put Him to death to He's generous, but that's what you're supposed to see. Samuel's family is fruitful. The hand of God is upon them. Again, the Lord is working. He's advancing His plan and it's happening one little moment at a time. One more feature from Samuel's life. We see his service. We see his siblings. Finally, we see his growth. His growth. Look at verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So some time has passed. Did you catch it? In verse 18, Samuel is a boy. But here in verse 26, he's a young man. He's growing, in other words. Time has passed. Now the longer Samuel is at Shiloh, the worse you might expect him to get. I mean, after all, Samuel is young and impressionable. I'm sure Eli's sons tried to draft him into their schemes. But that's not what happens, is it? As Samuel grows, he increases not in wickedness, but in wisdom. His life brings God's favor, not His fearful judgment. You see, with both God and other people, Samuel is thriving. Even in the midst of the squalor, Samuel is thriving. And how is it happening? Slowly, day by day, one year at a time, as Samuel grows up before the Lord. And that's the encouragement here for us, brothers and sisters. Samuel's life reminds us that we must be careful not to hold God to our timeline. We must be careful not to hold God to our timeline. You see, we expect things to be immediate. We expect growth to happen fast. And this is especially true when things appear bleak. We want to be delivered, and we want to be delivered right now. But friends, that is not how God's kingdom works. That's not how His plan advances. God's plan grows slowly. The way it takes time for a little boy to grow up to be a man. You can't rush it, but you also shouldn't misjudge it. Just because it's slow doesn't mean it's non-existent. This is how God works, bit by bit. Do you remember the moment from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus pauses to teach His disciples about the Kingdom of God? It happens in Mark chapter 4. Do you remember? Jesus has been teaching and healing people at a breakneck breakneck pace. Everything is happening so fast in Jesus' ministry and there's so much momentum that you would half expect the Kingdom of God to come tomorrow. But Jesus knows this is not the case. So He slows down and He teaches His disciples what the Kingdom of God is really like. And in one of His parables, Jesus said this, the Kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed 
on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Now, imagine being the man from the parable. On any single day, does it look like much is happening in your field? No, not really. But the seed is growing. First it's a sprout, then it's a stem, and one day, fruit. Rich, ripe, sweet fruit. Friends, that's the same truth as what we're seeing right here in Samuel's life. It, mu- it may not look like much, but God's plan is growing. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, whether it's your own life, or the life of another believer, or even the life of our church, have the kingdom perspective we see here with Samuel. Remember, God's work is more like a seed than a lightning bolt. So think in terms of His time, not yours. He is working to make you more like Christ. He is sanctifying that brother or sister that you're discipling. He is working in the lives of your children. He is working in the life of our church. Of course we may not see it right now. But you can't see any individual growth from a seed right now. You have to look in the big picture. It's the same truth. Friends, this is why the Christian life is to be lived by faith and not by sight. Because so often you can't see the progress of God's faithfulness. You have to take Him at His word. You've got to believe that His goodness, the same goodness that He gave to Hannah and to Samuel, that same goodness is working itself out in your life. He is working. And therefore, we walk by faith, trusting that our gracious Heavenly Father is growing His plan bit by bit, day by day, both in our lives and in the spread of His Gospel. So it might not seem like much. It's just a a few passing verses. So short, you might be able just to read over them. But oh, how much encouragement we should take from Samuel's life. As the boy becomes a young man, we see the humble growth of God's plan. Let's look now at the final truth. We've considered Eli's family and Samuel's family, and there's one more player in the passage, the Lord's messenger. And here we see the persistent mercy in God's judgment. The persistent mercy in God's judgment. Very suddenly, in verse 27, we meet a man of God. There's no warning, just this man appears in verse 27. And he's a prophet. Notice how his message to uh, to Eli begins, Thus says the Lord. That's prophetic language. This man has come to Eli with a message from God. And the theme of this message is judgment. The prophet's message has three distinct parts. Notice them with me. To begin with, the prophet reminds Eli of God's grace. Look at verses 27 and 28. God revealed Himself to Eli's forefathers, and God set them apart for His service. So Eli and his family have done nothing to qualify themselves for ministry. It was God who set them apart. It was God's grace. And this should make Eli keenly aware of his responsibility to God. That's always how grace works, friends. It doesn't lessen our accountability. It deepens it to God. So that our lives are bound to this One who has showered us with grace. 
So that's how the prophet's message begins. He reminds Eli of God's grace. Then in verse 29, the prophet indicts Eli for spurning that grace. He indicts Eli for spurning that grace. Let's read verse 29 again so that we feel the weight of it. And notice all the possessive pronouns from God. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering for my people? Friends, that's a fearful indictment. Now we know for sure that Eli failed in the leadership of his family. By not removing his sons from ministry, Eli has honored them above God. Eli has given glory to his own name rather than to the Lord's name. It's that serious. Eli's family has not simply dropped the ball on their duties. They didn't didn't go off the manual for spiritual service. They have scorned what belongs to God. And by scorning what belongs to God, they have scorned God Himself. To put it very plainly, Eli has loved himself more than he loved God. And for that, the Lord's prophet brings this stinging indictment. Finally, verses 30 to 36, the prophet announces judgment on Eli's house. Reminder of grace, spurning of grace, now judgment on Eli's house. And we could summarize this judgment with one word decimation. Decimation. With complete justice, God will decimate Eli's house. If Eli's line will not serve the Lord faithfully, then God will raise up someone who will. You see, Eli has presumed on God's grace. Since the Lord promised the priesthood to Aaron's descendants, Eli figured that he was safe. He he, he presumed on God's grace. Sure, his sons should clean up their act, but God can't go back on His Word, and He said that priests would always be connected to Aaron, so we're good. There's no urgency to do anything. But Eli was wrong in his presumption. It's it's certainly true that God will keep His promises, but He won't keep them through those who flagrantly violate and discard His Word. That's where Eli erred. If Eli doubts God at this point, the Lord gives him a sign, a tragic sign. Both of Eli's sons will die on the same day. Friends, this will be the bitter end for Eli's household. He has presumed on God's grace and that presumption has brought about God's judgment. So here's the question we're faced with at this point. How is this merciful? We said this final truth is about persistent mercy, but so far it just sounds like judgment. So how is it merciful? Well, broaden the scope a little bit and think about God's people as a whole. Think about all of Israel. They've been languishing under this failed leadership for some time. And if Eli won't do something about it, then God will. That's the mercy. That's the mercy. The Lord intervenes with judgment in order to care for His own people. You see, God is not doing this to be vindictive against Eli. That's not the character of God. Even in judgment, God is acting for the sake of His own. 
He mercifully does what He must so that His people would be spared from continued heartache. The peak of God's mercy is verse 35. Look what the Lord says. And I will raise up for Myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in My heart and in My mind. Who's the faithful priest? On one level, we could say that it's Samuel. He serves before the Lord and he grows up to lead the people in the worship of God. But if we go another level deeper, we could say this faithful priest is a man named Zadok, whom we will meet later in the book. He is a descendant of Aaron, and he ends up serving faithfully in the house of David, the Lord's anointed, for as long as David's line continues. So in some, another sense, it could be Zadok. But there's yet another level we can go to, isn't there? From our place in redemptive history, we know this faithful priest is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the truth we saw over and over in our study of Hebrews. Jesus is our faithful high priest. He did not discard God's Word. He is the Word made flesh. He did not defame God's glory. He is the glory of God incarnate. And what's more, the Lord Jesus didn't rob from our sacrifices to serve Himself. No, He gave Himself as our sacrifice. Shedding His blood in our place that we might be saved. You see, friends, the promise in verse 35 takes us all the way to Calvary's cross. And on that cross, the mercy of God led the Son of God to bear the judgment of God in our place. Think about it, brothers and sisters. We began this morning by saying it was not a pretty picture at Shiloh, but now we can close with an incredibly beautiful picture of the Gospel. Do you see the good news here? you got to see the good news. In 1 Samuel 2, God's mercy is mingled with judgment, but at the cross, God's mercy satisfies that judgment. That's the Gospel picture. And how does it happen? Why can wicked sinners like us find mercy? Because when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This Jesus is the faithful priest He has taken upon Himself the pervasive corruption of sin and He has made atonement for us once and for all. And now we live with the hope that His victory will grow, though it is small right now. His victory will grow both in our hearts and in this world. And it will be small at times, but even in those small moments, it is growing and one day very soon, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover all the earth as the waters cover the sea. God is at work among His people, and He is working through the Gospel. So, brothers and sisters, as we go out today, may we be renewed in our effort to fight sin. May we be encouraged in the unstoppable progress of God's work. And may we be comforted that in Christ, we have received the mercy of God, mercy that has dealt with judgment that we deserved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your kindness and Your mercy to sinners like us. Father, we are no better than those whom we have seen in this text who receive Your judgment. And yet, Father, out of Your mere good pleasure, 
the overflow of Your grace. You have mercifully provided a Savior for sinners like us. So we marvel at Your mercy that You would raise up in our place a faithful Savior, a faithful Mediator who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, grip us with the reality of our need to fight sin and encourage us and empower us, Father, with the good news that Christ has dealt with sin once and for all. We pray this, Father, for the glory of Christ's name and for the good of His church. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.